Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. On Spectrum, we cover a wide range of topics that are all important to our daily lives. We feature journalists, authors, scholars, policymakers, activists, scientists, innovators, and sometimes just people with fascinating stories. Today, we're talking with Phil Elliott. He is a Washington correspondent for Time and author of the daily newsletter, The D.C. Brief. He gives us his preview of the November midterm elections and updates us on the latest happenings in politics from the heartland to the Capitol. Phil, we're a couple of months out from uh, midterm elections. Uh, everybody was giving this to the Republicans. There have sort there's sort of been a resurgence of Biden popularity and the Democrats actually getting something done too little too late, or is it still the Republicans game to lose? You know, historically it is the Republicans game to lose. I mean, just numerically since world war two, the party in power loses bigly (laughs) in their first bigly (laughs) and their first at bat with voters. The one exception to this is George W. Bush in 2002. One can argue all of politics got scrambled after 9-11 in 2001. And that just is a permanent outlier that we just need to write off as an aberration. Um, I mean, presidents in their first at-bat tend to get, I mean, in the the words of Barack Obama, get just shellacked. I mean, they get a thumping. Um, yeah. depend, I mean, there, there, there is no shortage of aphorisms for what, um, it feels like at the, for the white house heading into their first midterm. And part of that is, you know, even for someone like Joe Biden, who has been at the white house for eight years as vice president has, was in the Senate for 36 has been in elected office since the seventies, making the adjustment to, but from outside armchair quarterback to actually being the person who gets the ball on first down is really difficult. And no one can argue that the whole of the president's first two years has been good. He had a very good summer unexpectedly. I frankly was surprised that he got his act together, um, that the Democrats were able to coalesce around an agenda and give him some wins. Um, Frankly, uh, Joe Manchin uh, stunned me that he that he got on board with the president's agenda, um, especially as it relates to infrastructure. Um, 
But was it too little too late? I think that's the right question. That if you've spent, you know, 18 months baked in with the idea that the Biden administration is struggling, and then they have, you know, a good month, and then they go away for a month, and then they head into the the fall push towards the election, does, does that really count? I mean, a, a broken clock is still right twice a day. And that is where I think a lot of Democratic strategists are worried that, okay, the fundamentals might have come around, but was anyone paying attention? And that's a really tough place for Democrats to be, especially given the history that just says, you know, really doesn't matter. Your first two years is in the White House is just going to put that party at a deep, deep disadvantage when it comes to voters. Clearly, Biden and his administration stumbled, and, and Joe Manchin has has not been a, a great uh, help to him uh, in in getting success. But he also gets no media time, with Trump demanding all the time and all the space in media. I would argue that Joe Biden could have as much time as he wanted if he would go out there and actually make himself available. This is a president that has done very, very few press conferences. He will maybe say three or four words under the wing of an airplane. His social media team is expressly low key. They are, I mean, they will deputize TikTok stars, but <laughs> will make him. No, I'm not kidding. Like I know S- SNL hit it right on the head with a skit um, about the Biden team trying to engage TikTok stars to make the case uh, make the case for the administration. It, it's a novel approach, but at the end of the day, there's one person with a presidential megaphone, and that is the president. And if he's not willing to use it, um, I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for him. He he's not done a ton of interviews. He's not. He'll go and he'll make very, very cautious statements. Um, it's it's if you want the if you want the bully pulpit, you actually need to be the bully. And Joe Biden's not the bully. That's not his style. He thinks he can make some major inroads. You know, be nice to Mitch McConnell, and that frankly is just not going to be enough. On, on your point about Joe Manchin, I, I've I've spent a lot of time talking with him and his orbit. Um, over the years. And while those of us on the outside might think Joe Manchin is thwarting the president's agenda, there is the school of thought, and I don't know how accurate it is, but there is a school of thought that Joe Manchin may actually be the person who saves Joe Biden from himself and might be the key to Joe Biden's second term if he runs for re-election as expected by curbing the left by basically vetoing the AOC part of the Democratic agenda and keeping Biden inside in, inside the bumpers. That Manchin is quietly and, you know, stealthily and maddeningly keeping Biden in the mainstream of where Democrats really are and not where Twitter Democrats are. He does that for the Democrats, one school of thought. Who's doing that for the Republicans? People like Mitt Romney, people like Rob Portman from Ohio, who still, believe it or not, has incredible power, even though he's retiring. Um, people, Shelley Moore Capito um, out of West Virginia. I mean, she's poised to take over 
Um, she she has a if if Republicans take over the Senate this fall, she 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 stands to become chair of a really powerful committee that oversees um, energy and public works. Um, and that's there are still moderating forces. Lisa Murkowski out of Alaska, Susan Collins out of Maine. Um, there are still mainstream responsible Republicans who are standing in the breach against people like Josh Hawley um, and the insurrectionists and the election deniers. And frankly, everyone who thinks they have a chance in 2024 and are just falling over themselves, trying to get themselves in a place where they can um, compete for the MAGA base of the Republican Party. I never want to talk with you without giving you a plug for the DC brief, um, which I think is just exceptional. Oh, thank you. Uh, uh, talk a little bit about that and and how people can go about getting it, and then I'll get to my question. Thank you. I appreciate the shamelessness here, um, and I will lean into <laughs> it. <hard>. Open. <laughs> I will lean into it hard. Um, so four days a week, it is our Time Magazine newsletter on politics it's tries to break down what really matters in washington it's kind of a it's kind of a decoder ring and it's the conversations i'm having with my sources on the hill in the administration um in the consulting firms and frankly the state houses right now um where so much of the fight especially on abortion rights and voting rights are unfolding you can subscribe at time.com slash uh the dc brief it's free it comes to your inbox um, four days a week in the afternoon. Um, we start the week with a Monday memo about, hey, here's what's coming this week. Here's one issue that you're going to be hearing a lot about that you might not understand. Here's what you need to know. And then through the rest of the week, we have fun with it. I mean, I interview authors who are publishing great new pieces of contemporary history, talk with pollsters. Sometimes it's just me hauling off on, okay, this is, this is ridiculous. This is a shenanigan. <laughs> this is a stunt. This is a, this is embarrassing. Uh, for instance, last week I was able to just write about one Senate race in the country that this is a substance free reality show and both parties should be ashamed of themselves for running it, but it's going to cost them $300 million on a substance free just screaming match that has nothing to do with voters and voters are, would be better served moving to a different state where they might actually have a, uh, a Senator who pays attention to what actually matters. I, so anyway, I, char I characterize those columns that you write as pay no attention to the man behind the curtain you know, from the wizard of Oz. It just, exactly. It just fits uh, to, to what you're trying to do. Let, let me back up a little bit because Phil, uh, my perception, and maybe I'm wrong, is that you're taking a different approach to covering the midterms than most mainstream media. And what I mean by that is that most of the national media look at the midterms from a national perspective. For several months now, you have been dipping into state-by-state sort of deep dives to to look at what's happening in the heartland. Tell me one, why why you chose that that option and two, what you're finding. Well I, I chose the option because I'm lucky enough to have it. Frankly, um my editors at time trust me 
for some why I have no idea, but they trust me. (laughs) And I, I, I make the case that, you know, individual candidates do matter and national trends only get us so far that there are specific rate. Everyone it's, it's the polling, it's the data poll data that you find in Gallup polling that everyone hates Congress, but everyone loves their member of Congress. So if you go out in the field and talk to voters, you can see that the national trend only is a drag so far that there are really specific nuances in local races. Um, for instance, in Georgia, um, Trump is a big problem for Republicans um, among independents. But in Georgia, Republicans nominated a, a legendary football star that's, you yes. know, he, he, he's a terrible candidate. Herschel uh, Walker. Herschel Walker. He's a terrible candidate by all accounts. Um, he, I mean, first time candidates are never good. This one is particularly problematic and Republicans are, you know, freaking out about it. But in Georgia, I mean, I, I have a, I was talking with someone at a Republican businessman who gave his name. He, I don't have it in front of me, but he, he on the record said in the state of Georgia, we will take a black football star over a black pastor any day of the week. And that is the dynamic where you have to be on the ground reporting to figure it out. You like out in Nevada, you know, La Senadora, um, the Senator, uh, Catherine Cortez Masto is hugely popular in the Hispanic community out there. Um, and is, you know, competing against the son of a legendary coach. It's those type of on the ground observations and just going to diners, going to frankly, casinos, going to union halls, going to, you know, voter registration tables on college campuses, you actually learn more by getting out there and talking with voters and activists and on the ground consultants and union chiefs, um, far more than you're going to get from sitting in Washington and, you know, dialing the political analyst who's been called 14 times already today. And that's where I think the midterms are really ripe for reporters who want to get out there, cut their teeth or, you know, sharpen their teeth or, you know, just hope the teeth don't fall out of their head like (laughs) me and just see campaigns up close. Because as much as you want to believe the hype and say, okay, this is the national trend. This is what's going to happen. There's still peculiarities on local levels that you just have to be in the field to cover. And that's why, you know, I, I, I was out for three weeks. I, I spent the August recess on the road, um, just popping into states, um, dipping my toe into places and just, you know, talking with the candidates and seeing, you know, what national advice they're ignoring, frankly. And there are a lot of candidates who, who, you know, they're going to win and they're going to win because they ignored everyone in Washington. They're not taking the national advice. They're, they're tailoring their campaign messages to what they're seeing at, you know, frankly, their, their state fairs, their county fairs, their dog shows in one case and adjusting for that. They're listening to their constituents and, you know, all the focus groups in the world out of the DNC or RNC, they're going to miss the, the local, the local, flavor and the winning candidates are the ones who pay attention to it. And it's really, I mean, even presidential campaigns, there's not a national strategy. 
there's about a 15 state strategy for presidential campaigns and every state that they go to, they're reminded what matters, what they need to talk about, what they need not talk about and how they just kind of play up what actually matters. I mean, there's a great story, um, during, you know, for, um, Gabe DiBenedetti, who has a great book out um, about the Biden-Obama relationship, talks about how when Biden was rent on the ticket as vice president, they spent an entire um, car ride briefing him on, okay, you you say you're a Green Bay Packer fan. Here's Here are the players you can talk about. Here are the players you must never speak of because they're conce- <laughs> considered traitors. And it's that level of pandering. And yes, it's pandering, but that is what is required to win a campaign even on a presidential level, you take it down to a congressional level, you're now talking about aldermen. You're talking about town, you're talking about township trustees, you're talking about town administrators. You have to know who to who to stroke and who to shun. And that is really where, you know, national focus groups and pollsters miss the mark and are just not useful. So far we've had two major special elections, one in New York, one in Alaska, and a, an abortion vote in Kansas. Mm-hmm. How surprised were you about those outcomes? Frankly, all three shocked me. I They all flew in the face of conventional wisdom. They flew in the face of what we had been told was going to happen. Yeah, and describe I, each if you could. So Kansas, Kansas considered... You know, it's Kansas. It's Kansas. Um, It's Kansas. Um, They, in the wake of the Dobbs decision, which ended a federal um, right of right to abortion, um, they rejected um, a hardline abortion. They actually uh, abortion ban. They they embraced. um, um, I won't say embrace, but they they rejected a hard hard line on abortion, and that's not what you would expect from. Up, you know, Kansas. <laughs> no, no, uh, no, you wouldn't. Um, in Alaska, I mean, they're sending the first Native Alaskan uh, to Congress, um, who Mary, defeated Sarah Palin. Defeated Sarah Palin. They're both still on the ballot in November, but you know, momentum, incumbency matters, and momentum is something um, here. And in in New York, you know, they a, a Democrat prevailed in a in a very swing district. That is not what one would expect if the Democratic Party and the Democratic candidates are supposedly flying into really tough headwinds. Those are three. I mean, it's three for three in those cases. I will say there was a special election in Texas where a Republican prevailed in a place where Democrats thought they were stronger than they were. Um, and then you're taking a look, take a look at the money and it's truly a mixed bag on who's been able to raise a ton of money, both on the official side as candidates, and then, frankly, the super PACs. Mitch McConnell is sitting on a boatload of money that he can use to play in a really um, peculiar way. I mean, you're looking at you know your state of Ohio, our state of yeah. Ohio. Um, so does he back the Trump candidate, or does he hold off and hold back? Mitch McConnell will back whoever gets him the gavel, and it doesn't ideology is secondary to Mitch McConnell getting the majority. And that is the only lens that we really need to pay attention to when okay. it comes to uh, leader McConnell going from minority leader to my back to majority leader. 
that he will make a deal with anyone who gets him to 51 votes. And, you know, you can, you can hate him for it, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you have ideologically simpatico friends, if you only have 49 seats, he will take 51 cats that he cannot herd as long as it gets him and his fellow Republicans chairmanships again. But will it, in the sense that, you know, Trump has put a target on his back, uh, Trump candidates, uh, how supportive would they be if elected of a Mitch McConnell? I think if you're J.D. Vance and just had $30 million of Mitch McConnell money save you, um, that gets you the benefit of the doubt for one vote for majority leader. It might be hell after that. But I think it's going to be really tough for these candidates who were saved by Mitch McConnell's super PAC, Mitch McConnell aligned super PAC, um, to make their first vote to vote against the guy who saved their hide. It's just cravenly difficult to do. That said, I'm not sure that we're looking at a situation where that we need to even be considering what how Republicans vote for majority leader because they might not need to take, they might not need to take that vote. That really, we're at a 50-50 Senate right now, and you're look, I'm looking at these races, Pennsylvania, um, Arizona, I mean, the, possibly New Hampshire, where you're going to end up, Ohio, um, we're going to have some really tough races with some Georgia, deeply problematic candidates where Republicans professed neutrality in the primary, but wound up with candidates who are trying to go head to head with incumbents or nom- democratic nominees who frankly match their state better and have done this before. I mean, first time candidates are tough. First time Senate candidates are really tough. Um, neophytes don't have a great record of winning reelection. And some of these guys they put up in gals, but mostly guys because politics is still a guy's sport. Unfortunately, um, they're, they're, they're just not up to the task. M- maybe 20 years ago before Twitter and before YouTube, they, they might have been okay. But we live in an era where instantaneously their record is out there and everything they've ever said exists on video. And you can run the tape and it's oftentimes it's, it's ugly. Let me ask you about Ohio because I think Ohio is is sort of a microcosm. Uh, we have J.D. Vance uh, uh, on the Republican side, who uh, in Ohio has been labeled the Twitter candidate because he spends all of his time on Twitter and not a lot of time on the in the field uh, against Tim Ryan, who is a uh, long-term uh, politician, uh, congressional Democrat, uh, who is uh, really out pe- pressing the flesh and trying to be the non-Democrat Democrat, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> uh, how does how does that play out, and how indicative of, is that of the national picture in some of these key races? So my editor and I had this lively conversation yesterday. I won't say a fight, but we had a lively conversation in which we had a debate whether the Pennsylvania Senate race or the Ohio Senate race was the most indicative 
campaign the cycle because in pennsylvania you have fetterman the lieutenant governor who's just a lot literally larger than life guy who's you know he campaigns in cargo shorts and a hoodie versus dr oz the republican who is a, a tv you know medical medical supplement diet vitamin salesman and spend um, his summer in europe and in palm springs right yeah yeah i mean okay. they're, they're just they're just it's it's the race that i label as garbage there is no substance whatsoever there but it is all about personality versus ohio where you you're right tim ryan is the non-democrat democrat he ran for president he challenged speaker pelosi um he's you know a china foe He's out there attacking China. He's a blue collar guy. I grew up in his district um, and okay. I, I, I've known Congressman Ryan um, 20 years. I mean, he's he he fits the Northeast Ohio steel town industrial center collapse. I mean, he has seen it up close. Um, whereas J.D. Vance, who grew up in Athens, uh, where you are um, and wrote a book famously trashing Athens, um, hillbilly elegy, um, trashing Appalachia broadly, I should say, and giving voice to grievance of, you know, the forgotten man. Um, he really hasn't campaigned. He doesn't think he needs to. He thinks he, I mean, he does have billionaire Peter Thiel's backing and the whole proposition of his campaign was he can outsource the hard stuff to the, uh, Peter Thiel, who's the Silicon Valley billionaire let him let him run the messy stuff. He can do the ads, the field, the data, maybe even the debates, um, just offloading all of the hard work. And as a result, Vance is kind of, you know, campaigning as troll. And Tim Ryan is out there campaigning, you know, three or four stops a day. And he 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 is very on social media. His team is very aware of what's possible, not only just for um, messaging, but also fundraising. J.D. Vance like, I got a billionaire. I don't really need to fundraise. I don't need to show proof of life. Um, I will be very curious how this sorts out because uh, we, we saw this with Trump that you can offload a lot to super PACs and outside groups, but early voting does matter. And Trump really, especially in the reelect, ignored early voting, which you really need the candidates touch on. Had Trump taken early voting seriously, he might still be in the White House. That early those, voting is those a place ballots to... go out the, the end of this month, beginning of October, correct? Yeah. I mean, the, in Ohio, they go out uh, really soon. Yeah. Um, pa- Pennsylvania, they start next week. I mean, there are some places where you can get your ballot 55 days ahead of time and you can bank that. Some states, you know, I'm mean, looking at like Colorado, for instance, everyone just gets their vote by mail. And I think Colorado, if memory serves, was like 88% of people voted in Colorado in 2020. That really makes a difference. And you can bank a lot of votes early. And But a super PAC is so much less effective doing that than a candidate in a, in a big way. And if you're not showing up and asking people and helping people and encouraging people to vote early, you're wasting that. You're wasting those opportunities. So and I think that's where that's that's a warning sign that I think Vance. You know, I'm not. I, I'm not in the business of advising candidates, but 
man, that's an opportunity that's, that might be squandered. So which side did you come down on? Was Ohio your microcosm or Pennsylvania? I will do everything I can to get to the Pawpaw Festival in Athens. <laughs> <laughs> so Ohio was 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 your your microcosm uh, to, I, I mean, least- I, to your point i think i to your i i think ohio is still more of a swing state than people give it credit for a lot of us here in washington will say well ohio's a red state now it's a it's a red state when trump is on the ballot and hillary clinton's on the ballot it's a red state when you can't actually run a campaign it, it's a swing state when someone who puts in a technocrats campaign like Barack Obama or frankly a Sherrod Brown who yes. put in the work and know the state work their asses off. It took someone, I mean the, the most talented operative in the, in national Republican politics is Corey bliss and Rob Portman hired him to run his, his campaign the last time six years ago. And Corey built the most amazing Republican technical operation that I've ever seen. It beats Bush Cheney, um, 2000 and 2004. Um, the problem is those things are expensive and they take constant nurturing. Um, and it's, it, 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 it's, it's hard work and both parties have kind of ignored Ohio in really criminal ways that it's going to take massive investment, both for the state party and the national party to make Ohio a swing state again. But I do think Ohio remains um, a jump ball for both parties and an opportunity for him at the same time. Congressional gerrymandering aside. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educated students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. I want to talk about issues for, for a bit, and I want to talk about the abortion issue. Is it a sleeper issue, as we saw in Kansas? Is it going to be more out front in the last six weeks of the campaign? Where do you see that with the electorate? So I would say it's not a sleeper issue, as you describe it. It's a screamer issue, that this abortion is something that I had not fully appreciated until I got out in the field and talked to voters it is a huge driver of um, voter interest 
voter fear, anxiety. I, I went to a, uh, a women's event um, in suburban Las Vegas. And, you know, it, a lot of mothers were there, kids on hip, kids in right. strollers, kids running through the uh, splash pad. And women, mothers were upset that abortion rights were now not there. That, you know, they obviously have children of their own, but it's like, they don't want a third kid. If something were to, if an unplanned pregnancy were to happen and at 38 years old, they're not eager to start resetting their family um, contours. And, And they were frankly, you know, upset that especially Republicans who are now all in on, okay, if we take the majority, we're going to, you know, have a federal ban on abortion. Right. Like that, that is not where frankly women are. It's not where the country is. I mean, Roe was here for a half century. Like this wasn't something that's fleeting, like a Burgerfell. And I think a Burgerfell is something we need to talk about. Um, the, the same, the, uh, federal same sex marriage rights. Right. Um, right. That's that's more recent and that is less durable um, to my mind. But you're you are the judge, so I will defer to you on this. Um, but I think Roe, most people thought it was settled. It animates a small section, a very loud section, but a small section of conservative politics. But the dog caught the car here, and now that the dog the dog has the wheel of this car, and the and the teeth are stuck in the rubber, and they're just getting thwacked. They're just spinning around the axle and they're getting run over every cycle. And that is not a good place for them. Uh, Female candidates have gone from um, really, there's a lot of Republican um, female recruits who showed great promise. And now they just don't know how to deal with this situation. Um, And it's really tough for them. Also, if you want to, I mean, in both parties who runs campaigns, it's women. The men might be the campaign managers. The women are the super volunteers. They're the ones phone banking every night. They're the ones knocking on doors. They're the ones writing postcards. They are the backbone of every campaign in this country and have been since World War II. They're unsung, undercredited, always underpaid, but they're the ones who actually run American politics. And now, they're looking at a scenario where they're just like, this is not what we signed up for. Well, I'm seeing if, if abortion is the tip of the spear, then from that we have um, sort of an anti-Supreme Court backlash. And what I mean by that is that we have groups that are concerned about uh, gay marriage. We are concerned... Uh, groups that are concerned about trans rights. We have groups that are concerned about ethnic minority rights. All of those rights being dissipated by by this court or the fear of that. Do all of those package together to make something even more potent than the abortion issue? Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, if, if you can strike down abortion, you can strike down interracial marriage, you can end up same-sex marriage, you can wind up getting at, I mean, just privacy in general 
is right. a huge it, it's at it's that is the core of what we're doing here i mean you want to talk about like medic the right to, like hipaa like i mean you can just go you can pull this thread and take it to its most um unimaginable but not unimaginable consequence and that is something that you know groups i i, I was mocking them in 2016 but like stacking the court like okay there's nothing that says the Supreme Court SB nine justices. Just get rid of the filibuster. Make it a fifteen person court. Throw a bunch of liberals on there. Go back to you know uh, nineteen. You know, go back to the early nineteen hundreds and just yeah, we don't like the ruling. Well, but we'll add some new justices and we'll, we'll work until we had to end up with a majority. It's I think it's, Franklin Roosevelt tried that. <laughs> he tried. Um, I, I think we we can we can get a little neater than a. FDR, but it's, it's really a place where, you know, at this moment, it is not unimaginable to see the Supreme Court say the rights of white Christian men triumph over everything else. And that's a scary place to be um, if, if you're not a straight white Christian male. And that is something that I think even conservative women are looking at and saying, hold up, like not a fan of abortion rights would never have an abortion myself, but you're telling me that we're going to follow through to the point of, you know, segregated schools again. Like if it's just a scary place to be, if you work in this um, space of activism. So people that feel that way. And as you mentioned, predominantly women, uh, who who feel that way? How does that play out at the polls? Do they come over if they're Republican? Do they cross over and vote Democratic? Do they stay home? Uh, you know, the outcome may be the same, but but how does that convert to the ballot box? I don't think you're going to see anyone stay home on this issue. I mean, just anecdotally and looking at focus groups and the polls, there's an intensity around this issue that I had not expected. And I, I know it's from a place of privilege as a white, a white man who uh, never single white man who just is not abortion is never going to touch me in a personal way. It is a place of privilege privilege. I need to recognize that, but I hadn't recognized how intense the emotion was around this. And I thought it was going to be, you know, a secondary issue like, oh, eminent domain or, you know, sure. something that is important, but eh, it's, it's, you know, it's not, no one decides to vote on eminent domain. There's a real intensity on this that I had, it frank, frankly, you know, slapped me in the face. Both, you know, I mean, in Nevada, it was like, oh, that, it's Nevada, it's Nevada, you know, sure, progressive West independent libertarianism they've got that you know pluckish west coast adjacent right. streak but missouri oh we're gonna do this the kansas vote oh kansas um i was up in wisconsin um right and i was like whoa like this is breaking through here like wisconsin's like you know you know scandinavian adjacent you know lutheranism like you just don't you don't really think of that as a place where abortion rights animates anyone. It's, it's cheese and cider and Oktoberfest. Um, and we love them for that. Um, and the Packers. 
and and the Packers. You know, <laughs> I, I I did the Lambo leap in 2012. It was there you know you we all we all lean into you know lo- parochial fun. Um, but no, that was breaking through there, Ohio and Pennsylvania, even New Hampshire, where, you know, live free or die. Like they're just like, get the government out of here. Well, get the government completely out of it. It's, it's really a, an issue that's breaking through regardless of geography or or political identity. Okay. This this is deeply personal for a lot of people. Let me play one off against the other. Yeah. We we have the abortion issue and the fear issues. Uh, I'll, I'll cluster those together versus inflation. You know, uh, people in the past have voted their pocketbooks. You know, are, are those, those are obviously competing issues. Uh, what trumps the other? I don't think you no can separate them. No, I don't think you can separate them. If you're having trouble filling up your gas tank, uh, having an extra kid to take to soccer practice, I mean, that gets costly. Okay, you got to you got to okay. put your kid through school, and you know, school supplies were more expensive now than they've been in the past. That you know, having an ex an extra seat at the table, that's an extra mouth to feed. That's an extra back to clothe. That's an extra mind to educate. Um, you know. Uh, abortion is as much about personal freedom and choice as it, it's an economic issue. Um, that you know, no one, no one gets pregnant with the express goal of having an abortion. It's just that's there is an economic justice component to the abortion debate that is really difficult uh, to articulate, and Democrats wisely have avoided for a long time. But uh, abortion is an economic justice issue, um, and it's it's a fairness issue, and it's uh, an equal an equity issue, and it's it's really a tough conversation to have. But it's it, if you go at it a clear eyed, you can't separate abortion the conversation on abortion from the one on the um, individual economics. All right, so I want to go back to Biden and his activities over the last few weeks uh, and his rhetoric. Um, the the MAGA people are uh, threats to democracy. Uh, they're semi-fascist, which uh, the term just is a wordsmith, just makes me shudder. <laughs> You're either fascist or you aren't. But, but kind of, kind of, you're kind of pregnant. Yeah, right. It's it's that kind of thing. It, obviously, those have been timed uh, by by strategists for him to do that. How does that differ from Hillary Clinton's perhaps gaffe of calling those same people deplorables? One is a statement of principles of you know, it's 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 an. One is a diagnosis of character. One is a diagnosis of politics. And, you know, it, you can be a semi-fascist or a fascist or fascist adjacent. And that, that, <laughs> that, 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 that I mean, we, we can play around with the semantics all we want. But that is, a, that is a system of beliefs, whereas deplorable was just a judgment of individuals and their character. And you, you can get away with that, diagnosing someone as a fascist but you can't get away with diagnosing someone as a terrible human being. And that is, that is the difference there. I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying either one of them is correct. 
but I am saying that Secretary Clinton's comments showed an utter disrespect for individuals and their beliefs, and the other is an indictment of individuals and their beliefs based on substance, not on character. We'll talk about this sort of um, call that democracy is in peril uh, coming from the White House. Um, Again, uh, too little, too late. Uh, You know, why wasn't this done earlier? You know, how does this mesh with current events going on in the legal world? You know, uh, talk about him coming forward with this at this time. Well, Biden has always been worried about threats to democracy. His team has been more worried about it than he has, to be frank. But it wasn't until it started showing up in the polls, uh, with NBC's being the you know canary in the coal mine, of threats to democracy overtaking the economy as the number one issue in the election, that gave them permission to go in on this. Biden was never going to lead. I mean, Biden's just not someone who gets ahead of where the public is. Biden is, a, by his very nature, a very cautious politician. Um, he's As much as he screws up and makes gaffes, he, st- he is still always aware of where the public is. And he, he isn't one to get ahead of the public. I mean, as much as he boxed Obama in on his support of same-sex marriage, he didn't get ahead of the public on it. He followed the public on this. He just got ahead of where Obama was in the 2012 election cycle when, I mean, Biden went on Meet the Press and declared his support of same-sex marriage um, on a fr- They taped on a Friday. It was going to air on Sunday. It was very bad for the White House, who had planned on Obama having his own epiphany and as he headed into re-election in 2012. This was 10 years ago. Still feels like yesterday. Um, but it was, Biden just followed where the polling was. He, and he, he got there, he said it before the president did, but everyone knew the president was going to get there for re-election. Um, I mean, so much of the president, President Obama's re-election bid was funded by gay donors, uh, gay men with means. It's just a statement of fact. Um, and he, Obama had to get there. Biden got there first. Biden has been there consistently following the polling. And the polling shows Biden's on safe ground on this one. Threats to democracy. I don't think, factually, he he might be on some, he might have some shaky assumptions here. But in terms of public support, he's completely fine. He's not going to pay a price for it. Does this mesh with the January 6th committee's action, with the Mar-a-Lago uh, searches, the, the documents? Is all of this meshed together? It does. Also, it, it coincides very neatly in a way that I think is often overlooked, the voting rights argument, that the Supreme Court overturned right. part of the Voting Rights right. Act. You take a look at threats to democracy, that includes gerrymandering. And, and the you're Republicans looking... have not chosen to to jump on that bandwagon. No, no. Um, you know, so much of Speaker Pelosi's agenda was voting rights, and th- you can throw... Th- you can include in threats to democracy super PACs. You can throw in their outside money. You can throw in their efforts to, uh, you know, contradict the will of voters. January 6th was, you know, the most crystallizing piece of it. But I mean, even in Ohio, you look at, look at your redistricting, 
I mean, the Supreme Court just keeps telling the redistricting panel, uh, your maps are garbage. <laughs> they just keep saying, no, we're not going to do it. And there's nothing that can be done about it. I mean, that is a threat to democracy. Um, whether you like the maps or not, you're just ignoring the Supreme Court. And the, the, the Ohio Supreme Court, which is Republican laden, mm-hmm. uh, chose multiple times to tell the Ohio commission that was uh, given the authority to draw new maps, that those new maps were unconstitutional uh, a number of times, you know, just to put that in perspective for the listeners. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's stunning to watch from the outside and, you know, a number of Ohio university grads are covering it on a date on a, on an hourly basis. And, you know, we, we check in with each other. We're like, oh, did, did I just read this headline right? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. They're just saying, nah, and that is good enough in, in the state of Ohio for that. Um, but it's, it's now getting more, more and more difficult to vote. I mean, in the state of Georgia, it, it's a crime to now give someone a bottle of water while they're waiting in line uh, to vote. It, it's just this insane, they're making it harder and harder to vote. And yet, and this is where I think everyone needs to push pause, and yet participation in elections is at all-time high. So it's more difficult, but more people are doing it. And I think that is an animating contradiction that I think both parties would do well to watch. I've got two areas that I want to uh, talk to you about, and then I'm going to open it up to to you and your agenda. Uh, Latino voters, uh, black voters, black women voters, African-American women voters, they've been critical in past elections. One helped Biden get elected. The other has been eroding towards the Republicans. How important are those ethnic groups in the midterms? They're absolutely crucial. You can't ignore them. They're also some of the most reliable voters. Um, frankly, white people don't vote in midterms. They, they just don't. Um, the the, the drop-off there is intense. And part of it is, and I, I you know, there, there's a lot of research on this, that so much of that is, especially in the black community, it's, to shorthand, a souls to the polls. That, you, you know, black pastors... They, they preach politics and it's, it's never explicitly vote for this person or vote for that person, but they remind them. I was in uh, Wisconsin a few weeks, uh, a few weekends so ago. I had to think about it. I'm like, <laughs> I know. I'm like, was I in Minnesota? No, I was, yeah. <laughs> I was in Milwaukee. Um, the go. other M. Um, but it was, you know, a, a historically black church in a economically disadvantaged neighborhood. And I, I just, you know, it's, if I'm going to be in, a, if I'm going to be in a city on a Sunday and, you know, want to figure out what people are talking about, you go to the historically black church. That is a good place for a barometer of democratic intensity. And I, I went, I went and the pastor was very careful not to put any of the tax exempt status in play, but her, her, her message, and it was a her, which, you know, I always find lovely, um, was, you know, not that long ago, your parents and grandparents were getting beat for the right to vote. It's too important for you not to vote. And, you know, 
not historically not having the right to vote is a resonant um, is, a, is a resonant issue. Um, whereas you know, white folks like yeah, we can vote next time, or eh, it, our vote doesn't matter. I'm too busy. I'm too busy. <laughs> um, and in in the Hispanic community, I mean, legitimately, I was can't, I was going in a Spanish, predominantly Spanish speaking working class neighborhood in North Las Vegas, um, going door to door with conservative activists, um, trying to get people registered to vote, get them interested in the campaign, make them aware that even if you're in some cases, you might not be a citizen, but you can still vote in Nevada. Um, I mean, number of houses we, we went to and, you know, 115 degree heat, but it's a dry heat. Um, knocking on doors. Um, and it was a lot of, a lot of their homes were mixed, mixed status. Like one parent, um, was a citizen. The other parent was not their kids. Some of the kids had papers. Some of them didn't. And it's a deeply personal issue in, in, in the Hispanic and Latino community there. And, you know, there's a resonance there that there just isn't, um, with white voters. And, and finally, you know, going not to belabor the abortion point, but man, women are just the backbone of American politics and they're pissed right now um, that this is not, this is not what they signed up for. They, they, they liked, they, they, you know, they liked the conservative politics of Trump. They liked the tax cuts. They liked, you know, that he was tough and that he was, you know, giving it to the man and, you know causing trouble and shaking up Washington, draining the swamp and all that hullabaloo. Um, but they didn't really sign up for, you know, the government telling their uteruses what was acceptable and what was not. Okay. Now, if we look at the critical races or the, the races, I, maybe critical is the wrong word. The, critical the race, race is, gets us in a dangerous place. Yeah, right. The races like the the Ohio race, J.D. Vance, Tim Ryan, mm-hmm. uh, the the Pennsylvania race, Doctor Oz Fetterman, uh, the the races around the country in in Arizona. Um, which race or races, or Herschel Walker in Georgia? I shouldn't eliminate that one. Which race or races do you actually think could go Republican? I think of any those of those fringe I, candidates. I think it, it, any of them could happen. I mean, that's just that's it could. I mean, you, you Adam Laxalt in Nevada is running um, close to Catherine Cortez Masto. What, what, though, would it, what would it take for those things to happen? I mean, obviously more votes, but, but you know, is there, <laughs> is, is there a, 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 a trigger, a factor? So, I mean, we're, we're going to be watching the economy really closely. Don't discount the ability of something in Ukraine uh, throwing us into a tailspin. Uh, Democrats could easily implode if <laughs> Biden, True. I mean, don't, don't discount their ability to screw this up. Um, Biden could say something really stupid. And that just becomes the entire ball game, and all Democrats have are spent on their heels explaining whether they support or oppose something Biden said that's knucklehead. Um, the economy is still teetering. I'm, I'm watching my uh, my retirement fund. Um, sure, 
shrink by the hours I'm watching uh, the inflation numbers play out. Um, and, and, you know, just don't discount it, it, the, uh, the random October surprise. Um, you know, Nevada's in play. Um, Georgia is still Georgia. Um, you could wind up with a recount and runoff, so we might not end up knowing until January. Um, North Carolina Senate race is something that no one's paying attention to. Pennsylvania is going to be a ton of money. Ohio, I still think, is emblematic of the country's um, mood and their split screen of whether they want um, someone to continue in the Trump tradition of burning it down. New Hampshire want- as well. New Hampshire, Maggie Hassan is legitimately... Um, at risk. We're going to see who the Republicans nominate because we're still not through the primary calendar as we sit here at this hour. Um, and y- y- there are some other races where y- you're just like, y- you look around Colorado, for instance. Um, you've got a candidate out there, the Republican nominee, who is campaigning as a moderate. Hey, I'm a centrist. I, su- I don't overturn. I don't support overturning Roe. I think Dobbs was ill-decided. I like the bipartisan infrastructure fund. Joe Biden legitimately won the campaign. It's time for us to abandon the big lie. But in the same breath, he says he likes Ron DeSantis in 2024. So, I mean, there's just this, you know, there the Republicans have a not great roster of candidates, but any one of them could still win. And it, it comes okay. down to, it comes down to parochial and local issues. Okay, so if we look at this, and if the Republicans do not take the majority in the House and the Senate, more likely to take a slim majority in the House, Senate, you already said, is is 50-50, uh, a toss-up. If they don't do that, what does this do to Trumpism, and what does this do for 2024? Taking those is, separate, is, separate, this, yeah. is this the what will make the pendulum swing backward? No, no, not at all. Um, a lot of Trump's endorsed candidates got across the finish line in the primary. He has legitimately he has a winning record on endorsing in the primary, and he's endorsing some not just the marquee Senate races. Like he's doing city council, he's doing county commissioner. Like he is installing secretaries of state. Right. He, he's really spreading his, you know, the red hats widely. And that's, so he'll be able to claim victory no matter what. Let's just, the man, the man is a marketing genius. That is where his strength is and always has been. The house is super close. I mean, it's, it's five votes out of 435 that they need to pick up. You can do that really easily redistricting alone all but guarantees that it's going to happen um it's democrats may mount a stronger defense than they imagined and the governing majority of if if the republicans take the majority as expected their governing coalition is going to be impossible to manage um it's going to be insane it's going to give you know the marjorie taylor greens of the world veto um control over the agenda and the Jim Jordans. And the Jim Jordans and Lauren Boebert's, like that right. sect of the Republican uh, caucus will end up having outsized sway. In the Senate, 
you know, Trump may have, um, Trump may have anointed folks like Dr. Oz. And if Dr. Oz wins, that's Trump pops up his chest and says, this is my guy. If Dr. Oz loses, it's okay. It's Pennsylvania. Trump lost the state. What did you think a Trump candidate was going to do? Um, there, there, it, it's a spin and perception thing. Plus think, it was Dr. Oz, right? <laughs> I mean, New Jersey resident, Dr. Oz. So they'll dump on the candidate as well. Yeah. And they would, they would not be wrong to do so. The yeah. problem is less about Trump and more about the people who want to run against Trump. Um, namely Rick Scott has a ton to, um, wager here. Rick Scott, Senator from Florida is the quarterback of Senate Republicans campaign. He is the NRSC chair. He is the one who took an aggressively neutral position during the primaries, did not put his thumb on the scale. Um, he is, you know, he is midwifing Senate Republicans official campaign arm this cycle with an eye for a presidential run of his own. And that is where, um, if this doesn't go in Republicans way, Rick Scott's going to make it have a much duff, tougher case to make for his own presidential ambitions. And that's where this is. Um, you take a look at Trumpism and its future. I mean, Ron DeSantis is running for reelection. He's the chief Trumpy candidate who's not named Trump for 2024. Right. Democrats are trying to at least ding him up a little bit the way Democrats dinged up Scott Walker in Wisconsin ahead of his presidential campaign. Um, a lot of these guys are trying to figure out um, Marco Rubio has presidential ambition still, and he's in a tough race against Val Demings in Florida. Um, so three Florida men with presidential ambitions all have a lot riding on uh, the midterms um, and what that, how that gives them um, footing or, um, you know, fracturing um, toeholds um, for 2024. Well, Phil, we've got just a couple of minutes left, but uh, this is always my favorite segment of our conversations, and that's when I ask you to tell us what we as the average citizen out here in the heartland should be looking at from Washington in the next few months, besides the midterms. What should we be looking at? What should we be paying attention to? So the thing that I, I, I am always obsessed with government funding. Um, <laughs> can we keep the lights on? And that is an unknown at this point. And what is the lame duck going to look like? Cause there's going to be a period between November and January when a lot of members of Congress will have lost. That is just, it happens all the time. They will still have votes, but know that they're not coming back and there's nothing left for them to risk. And it's what does that agenda look like? And how do how do they vote in the interim? Do they codify Roe in that window? Because there are a lot of Republicans who are like, just not cool with the Dobbs decision. Right. Because it opens up a really difficult reality where if you, I mean, you're seeing in Ohio, like, do you cross the border into Pennsylvania? Do you, are you forced to go to another state to have a medical treatment of abortion? If you're a company, you know, like Time, do you tell employees if you live in a place where you can't get an abortion because the state has cracked down or um, trigger laws have gone into effect, 
are we now including airfare to a state where you can get abortion into your medical package? And that is, from a Chamber of Commerce point of view, a consistent position on abortion rights is good business. That's just, that's good financial planning. That's good economic um, stability. And there's, you know, predictability is our friend in business. Like you can, you, if you can budget it, you can, you can, you, you can cope with it. The uncertainty of state by state is really tough. And, you know, Congress by Congress is tough. So, I mean, that's something to look at, you know, marriage equality is still something that's, um, in, in the, in the, in the, in the uncertain place. Um, right now there are four senators who are public, four Republican senators who are publicly in favor of it. Um, they need 10 it's trying to figure out what those six look like, whether it's someone like, I mean, Rob Portman is already on the record, um, supporting it, but if someone who's not coming back to Washington or who loses their reelection, say like a Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, for instance, um, do they just say, you know what? I'm done with politics. I'm done fighting the culture wars. We're going to do it. I don't think Ron Johnson falls in that category for the record, but he's, he's the one who comes to mind the quickest. Right. Um, and, and finally, I think the voting rights issues, even if this election goes completely fine and no one is, you know, playing games or calling shenanigans or staging, you know, crises, there is a persistent worry among Washington insiders of both parties that, okay, we saw what happened on January 6th. Like they were legitimately there. They were hiding under their desks. They were running to hallways that were unmarked. They were, you know, blockading themselves in private offices. It was a scary day on the Hill where tear gas was in the hallways and windows were broken. I mean, there was still broken glass at the Capitol when Joe Biden took the oath of office on January 20th. Um, so January 6th really spooked a lot of them and trying to set in place guardrails against that repeating in 2024 or 2025 is something that I think a lot of people are looking at. And in the wake of the elections, I think the mid, I think the lame duck might be the ripest time um, for lawmakers to say, just in case, Let's codify exactly what can and cannot happen um, for the next election. As always, Phil, thank you so much for talking with us and, and sharing your insights. And one more time, a plug for the DC brief. Go ahead. Yes. So it is the Times uh, Politics newsletter out four times a week, completely free in your inbox uh, in the afternoon time.com slash the DC brief. Um, it's, it's me having this conversation with you by email. Um, it's just me or someone on my team narrating what matters in Washington, decoding what doesn't matter and giving, giving the, uh, giving readers the backstory of at least how I understand, uh, Washington's, um, actual, um, conversations around um, power and governing and a little bit of personality in there, but it's mostly um, it's my, my best stab at explaining how and why Washington is or is not working at the moment. 
It's written very well. You'll shake your head. Uh, you'll uh, have a chuckle. Uh, you'll nod a few times as as you read it. Not not off, but nod in, <laughs> nod in agreement. Again, Phil, thank you so much. And let's have another conversation during the lame duck. Sounds great, Tom. Today, we've been talking with Time Washington correspondent Phil Elliott about the current state of politics as we approach the 2022 midterm elections. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email. You can do that easily at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Have a good day, everyone.